Come now, Holy Spirit, we pray. Come and overrule and overwhelm. As we turn to the preaching of the word, we pray, Holy Spirit, for you to overrule and overwhelm my mouth and my words, our ears and our hearing, so that what is said and what is heard is in accordance to the word of God, for the good of God's people and for God's glory. Come and use these things, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Judges chapter 13, maybe we can call this sort of the emotional high point of the entire book of Judges because it's about a miracle baby and there ain't nobody who's going to be mad about a miracle baby. Am I right? Thank you. Good. Good. That's right. Everybody's happy about babies. And here we have all the fills, all the emotion of a baby coming into the world. As many preachers and commentators have noted, there are, are certain times in the Old Testament in which we find the gospel in utero. By this, we, we mean that they, what we find really significant clues and hints of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news of what God has done for his creation through the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. Even in the Old Testament, we can find hints and testimony about Christ to come. Sometimes this unborn gospel in the Old Testament takes the shape of specific promises of a great deliverer to come. You might think of something like Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, or Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, or uh, also from Isaiah chapter 9. And sometimes uh, this gospel in utero, this gospel unformed, unfulfilled, unborn, found in the Old Testament, sometimes it takes the shape of the grace of God, in events or in actions that he participates in, that he initiates, that he does for humans where humans cannot do it for themselves. And here in Judges chapter 13, we find the gospel in utero in that second form. We find God in his grace taking the initiative to do for his people what they could not do for themselves. Here in this chapter, God breaks in upon Israel, and in their complacency, God graciously begins to stir up within them to raise up a deliverer through a miracle baby. We human beings seemingly have a really incredible capacity to get used to just about anything and call it normal, right? We do. We can get used to just about anything and think it's the way it's supposed to be. There was a, a story in a, the Christian Science Monitor back in 2005 about a man who lived in a crooked house, a, a legitimate crooked house. He was a first-time home buyer, and he bought a house that was over 100 years old. And at first, he thought that it was falling apart. He didn't know what was actually holding it together because he could see the crookedness of the house and the floors and the ceilings, the roof line, the door jams, even the window frames. In this article, he says that if you were to drop a ball on the floor, it would just roll away into oblivion. He says if you open a door, you don't have to worry about closing it because it'll take care of it all by itself. He's got windows that hadn't been opened in years because they can't be. There was nothing in the house that was square, nothing was level, and it seemed that in places nothing was holding the place together. His carpenter friend by the name of Mike told him, listen, you got two, two options here. You can't fix it. You either sell it and live somewhere else or you live with it. So Bob chose to live with it. He lived in this crooked 
house. He, he grew to love the inconsistencies of the house. He grew to love how crooked it was. And, and now when he's confronted with brand new, perfectly straight homes, he says he never once looked at these new houses with anything resembling longing. Why? Because he had grown used to his crooked house. That was his normal. That's what he wanted. That's what he liked. He didn't know that he needed anything different because he was fulfilled where he was. We human beings have a capacity to get used to just about anything, no matter how bad it truly is, no matter how crooked it truly is. We have a capacity to call it normal and to like it that way. And that is where we find Israel as Judges chapter 13 begins. Incredibly uh, common, repeated refrain from the book of Judges in chapter 13, verse 1. We probably can say it by heart at this point, out of our own memories. The people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. And the Lord then doing what the Lord does in the book of Judges, he gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. The recurring theme, the cycle of life for the people of Israel in the book of Judges. They turn their back on Yahweh. They turn towards false gods. God turns them over to foreign oppression. Typically in the, in the book of Judges then, after a series or after years of oppression, they cry out to the Lord. The Lord responds with deliverance. They're good for a while, and then the judge dies, and it all starts again. This is a different cycle. This time, something's missing. This time, there is no crying out to the Lord. This time, the people of Israel fall into sin, forsake Yahweh. He turns them over to the oppression of the Philistines and nothing. This time, there is no crying out. It's significant, I think. It's significant because given the pattern of the book of Judges and, and given the attention to detail that the narrator of Judges consistently provides, this isn't a simple oversight. He didn't just forget to mention the detail of Israel crying out. It's not mentioned because they were not crying out. As we'll see in the next several chapters, as we'll see in the Samson story, in the midst of the 40 years of Philistine oppression, they had become comfortable and complacent. Their house was crooked. They called it normal, and they liked it like that. They'd grown used to Israelites, had grown used to the presence of the Philistines. They rubbed elbows with them. And as we'll see in coming chapters, they were happy to intermingle, to intermix, to intermarry with them. It seems as though Israel has become so comfortable under the Philistines that they've become assimilated into that culture to the point where they don't even feel the pain of oppression anymore. That's the depth of their Canaanization. That's the depth of their sin. It's an expression of how little like Israel they were and how incredibly pagan they had become. In Judges chapter 10, verse 6, the narrator talks about canonized Israel in the variety of gods they served. In Judges chapter 10, verse 6, there were seven different deities, not Yahweh, that the people of Israel were worshiping. That's how deep into the pagan system they were. And here they are so deep, they are so canonized into this pagan system, they won't even cry out to the Lord in the midst of oppression. Rather, they're happy to be coexistent, they're happy to be complacent, they're happy to be assimilated. Author Mike Cosper notes that this pattern 
of assimilation is a repetitive cycle for the entirety of the Old Testament, not just for the book of Judges. He writes, the great sin of the Old Testament is assimilation or capitulation to the world around them. Foreign gods, foreign wives, and unclean practices. What was crooked was called straight in Judges chapter 13 through 16. And here in the Samson story, we find an Israel looking more like the Philistines than like the God-intended Israel. There's very little evidence here that, this, that they have any level of discomfort. There's very little evidence here that they're at all concerned. They seem to have embraced the paganism. They seem to have picked up the ball and run with it. It seems as though Israel either doesn't want to be delivered or they don't even recognize that they need to be delivered. So the question becomes, what will God do for his people? God's people are in a, a very real danger of becoming extinct, of ceasing to be who they were called to be, of ceasing to be Israel. What will God do? God graciously interrupts them. God graciously disturbs their complacency as he calls Samson to a mission of saving. He graciously disturbs them with a miracle baby. In chapter 13, verse 3, we read that the angel of the Lord appeared to the wife of a man named Manoah. And when God sends his messenger, he does so of his own initiative. He's not invited. He's not cried out to. There is no repentance. God, in his graciousness, Simply because he does this, he sends his messenger, he provides a deliverer. The arrival of the angel of the Lord is a signal that things in Israel are about to change. It's a signal that, as a good old J.R. would put it, business is about to pick up. God graciously breaks in upon the complacency of Israel here as he provides this miracle baby. Most of chapter 13 is, is a birth narrative, and there are in uh, the several places in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, uh, significant birth narratives that precede the coming of a hero. Uh, for example, in Genesis chapter 18, uh, there's this birth narrative about the coming of Isaac, the child of promise. And then in Genesis chapter 25, there's this birth narrative leading up to the birth of Esau and Jacob. And then in chapter 30 of the book of Genesis, you have the, the birth narratives surrounding the births of the 12 sons of Jacob. A birth narrative, a special child is led up to this hero. However, this one here in, in, Je in Judges chapter 13, this one's a bit different uh, because of the way in which this particular hero defies expectations. He becomes a tragic anti-hero, and that's a topic for another sermon. For now, what we need to see this morning is, is God breaking in, God stepping in in his grace, not because the people of Israel have asked for it, certainly not because the people of Israel have merited it or earned it, but because God does it out of his love, out of his kindness, he steps in to do for his people what they cannot do for themselves. They can't save themselves. They can't correct themselves. So God takes it upon himself to provide for that correction. Manoah's wife is in a position that, that only God can change. The narrator notes for us that she was barren and had no children. And yet God knows her, God knows her condition, and through his messenger announces to this woman, Behold, you are barren and have not born children. 
but you shall conceive and bear a son. God is doing something within this poor woman that she cannot do for herself. This is something that she was not humanly capable of doing. She didn't have a hope of a child within her natural uh, body, within her natural means. Without God's gracious intercession, she couldn't have a child. That's reflective upon Israel and what Israel needs. Without God's interruption into them, without God's graceful, graceful action for them, they have no chance of life. They have no chance of a future. And yet here God is active. Here God is working to give them life, to bring out of her womb life. God then is working in and through a wife who could not change her natural circumstances to bring about an agent of deliverance. It's exactly what the angel says. This baby that you will conceive will be a deliverer, will be a judge. He says to her, he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. God here, providing this miracle baby for a very special purpose, the deliverance of Israel, the salvation of Israel from the hands of the Philistines. He will deliver them from their enemies. And while it's clearly stated that his saving work will be limited, it will be incomplete, he will begin but not consummate this salvation, this child set apart from the very moment of conception for special purpose, set apart for God's use with special obligations. We know the story of Samson. He's probably the most famous of all the judges. We love to tell stories about his incredible feats of strength. Is it some sort of ancient world festivus ceremony? We love to tell stories about he and Delilah and how he you know, was sort of seduced and tricked into revealing his secrets. This child was set apart as, as a Nazarite from the moment of conception. A Nazarite, according to Numbers chapter 6, was one who would take a temporary and voluntary vow to be set apart for service to God. And being a Nazarite meant that one would not drink wine, one would not come into contact with a dead body, and one would not cut the hair. This is different. Uh, Samson's Nazarite vow is different. God imposes it upon him. It is not temporary. Rather, it is lifelong. And it sets him apart for more than just service to God. It sets him apart to be a deliverer, an agent of salvation. So here we have God breaking in upon Israel by breaking in upon these two uh, people, breaking in upon Manoah and his wife, by breaking in upon their complacency, shaking them in the crookedness of their house as he graciously begins to stir up and raise up a deliverer through a miracle baby. It's amazing that there's more detail to come. There's this conversation between Manoah and the angel of the Lord in which the angel of the Lord says, I can't tell you my name. It's too wonderful. You wouldn't be able to per, uh, understand it. And then when, he, uh, is, when Manoah is offering up a sacrifice, Yahweh, the one who works wonders, takes up the, the, the sacrifice with a flame, and the angel of the Lord went up with the flame. So we've got this, this, this idea that God is so gracious, he promises something, then he provides a gracious sign. He shows that what he says he's going to do, he will indeed do. And at the end of the chapter, in almost an anticlimactic way, a woman, the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him, and the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him. 
in Mahana Dam between Zora and Eshtol. God graciously breaking in, breaking in upon Israel to provide what they need, to do for Israel what they cannot do for themselves. Folks, if Israel could have defended itself, if Israel could have saved itself, if Israel could have changed itself, it would have, but it couldn't. It couldn't, and it didn't, and it wouldn't. And we're not that much different, are we? And what we see in the God of the Bible, what we see in the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, the Trinity, is this gracious God breaking in upon us to do for us what we cannot do for ourselves. That's sort of the gospel in utero as we find it in the Old Testament. Here in Judges chapter 13, this unborn gospel in the Old Testament takes the shape of the grace of God in which he does for humans what humans cannot do for themselves. In his grace, God provided us miracle baby to do the work he's given him to do. He provided this miracle baby to begin to save his people, even while the people of Israel, in their comfort and in their conformity to the world around them, may not have realized they needed or even wanted to be saved. In similar fashion, centuries later, God would again provide a miracle baby to do the work that he had given him to do. This time, this miracle baby would not just begin the work of salvation, but this miracle baby would provide the fullness of salvation. Several centuries later, there would be another angelic visit to a woman without a child and to a man pledged to be her husband. Several centuries later, the angel pronounced a child that would be from God, a child set apart from conception for a holy mission, a child with a divine mission. Several centuries later, the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary, and an angel appeared to Joseph, and Jesus was brought into the world. Do not be afraid, the angel said to Mary, for you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. God providing through Jesus what we need, a king who will reign, a king who can change us and change our hearts. Matthew chapter 1, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, to Joseph that is, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Jesus isn't some uh, messianic uh, king who's going to save us politically and set up a, a political kingdom. No, Jesus works at a much deeper level. Our greatest enemy is not uh, disunity or, or, or brokenness in a political scheme. Our greatest enemy is sin. Our greatest enemy is death. Our greatest enemy is hell and Satan. And Jesus has come, a miracle baby, proclaimed by an angel, conceived in the power of the Holy Spirit, born in a perfect time and a perfect place to do that, that which we cannot do for ourselves, to save us from our deepest enemies. Sin, death, hell, and Satan. Here we have, in the birth of Jesus, in the coming of Jesus, here we have uh, Jesus who is the greater, greatest judge a miracle child conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the virgin's womb, the eternal Son of God incarnate for the purpose of saving his people from their sins. 
Samson was to begin the work of saving Israel from the Philistines, an enemy that they had grown comfortable with, an enemy they didn't recognize as enemy until God began to work in and through Samson. And in similar fashion, we don't always recognize the true enemies of our souls, and yet Jesus came to reveal them to us and to save us from them. It's only when Jesus, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begins to provoke us to do what uh, we begin to see the enemies for what they are, mortal enemies who seek our death. Jesus came not just to reveal our enemies, he also came to save us from them, to shake us in the crooked houses of our complacency. Jesus is the greatest judge as the deliverance he brings is full and final. He doesn't just begin it, he also ends it. Jesus is the beginning of salvation. Jesus is the end of salvation. And testimony of Scripture is quite clear. In Hebrews chapter 10, for example, uh, at verse 10, we're told, By that will, the will of God, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. In Hebrews chapter 10, verse 12, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, the author of Hebrews writes, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Jesus is completely sufficient for our needs, folks. He is God's gracious interruption into our lives in the midst of our complacency to save us, to deliver us, to bring us back to himself. The Hebrew author of Hebrews in chapter 12 refers, Jesus, refers to Jesus as the founder and perfecter of our faith. There's a wonderful little bit of one of our communion prayers from the Book of Common Prayer in which we say that God gave his son Jesus Christ to suffer death upon the cross for our redemption who made there by his one oblation of himself once offered a full, perfect, and sufficient sacrifice, oblation and satisfaction for the sins of the whole world. In Judges chapter 13, God graciously breaks in upon a complacent people with a miracle baby to deliver them. It's in his grace that he does this. A few centuries later, Jesus, because of God's gracious interruption, breaks in to deliver us from our sins. And what difference does it make? That's a great question. I'm glad that I asked it this morning. <laughs> what difference does it make? What's the point, right? How does it change us? Well, I think that it makes all the difference in the world for at least four reasons. First, this makes all the difference in the world because we must recognize who the God of the Bible is. The God of the Bible is the gracious giver. The gracious interrupter, the gracious one who comes. We've seen this over the last few weeks in, in our preaching time, that God is gracious. He gives the people of Israel what they needed, even if they didn't recognize the need, even when they weren't asking for it, God graciously poured it out. He did that in Judges chapter 13, and he does that in Jesus in Jesus, God provides all that is necessary for life with God. He provides all that is necessary for reconciliation to and with God. He provides all that is necessary for the fullness of salvation. God is the gracious giver who gives the greater Jesus, the greater judge. 
And what does that mean? Is that that, that is the second thing, this, the difference that this makes is that it means that this is the end of striving. This is the end of any pagan notion of, of works righteousness. This is the end of thinking that we are able to earn God's favor. This means that we're the end of our thinking that we're able to bargain for God's favor or pay for it or buy it or that God owes us anything because of the way we behave and live our life. Jesus is the end of striving. Jesus and his gospel is the end of that pagan notion of works righteousness. We do not come to the Father by our works. It is by grace. We do not stay with the Father by our works. It is by grace. We do not earn the Holy Spirit because of our works. He's given by grace. And so, yes, works come alongside our faith in the grace of God. They are examples and expressions of our faith, not an earning of God's favor. And in this, we need to once again be brought to our knees, being overwhelmed by the glorious sufficiency and grace of Jesus Christ. How can we stand here and think nothing of it when we begin to realize who we truly are and what God has truly done in Jesus? The end of striving with the sufficiency of Christ means we should be overwhelmed by his glorious majesty. Let it happen. And in this, Jesus disrupts our comfortable complacency. It's all too common and easy for us to be like Israel in Judges chapter 13, for us to become comfortable with and conform to the image of the world, which is why we need the grace of God in Jesus Christ to be disrupted again and again and again and again and again and again. Maybe that's just me. And again and again and again. What, what difference does this make? Well, God is the Bible. God of the Bible is the gracious giver. In Jesus, there is the end of striving. He is sufficient. He breaks in upon our complacency. He shakes us in our crooked houses of complacency. And then finally, folks, to be quite frank and quite honest, I have nothing to offer except Jesus. That's it. Because of who Jesus is, because he is the greater judge, and because Jesus is a divine disruption, all those who follow after Jesus have the calling to be witnesses for Jesus, offering Jesus to the world who is complacent, because, folks, we don't have anything else to give. We can't solve the world's problems, but Jesus can. We can't save a soul, but Jesus can. And our vision here at Emmanuel is to be a church that glorifies God by blessing people with gospel ministries that they may believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior and join us in building his kingdom. Quite frankly, it isn't about us. It's about Jesus. He's the one who's sufficient. To do this, to accomplish our vision, we are called to actively create space in which we can be used by God to present Jesus to those who do not yet believe, that he may be the one who disrupts them, and in their comfort and complacency, that they may see him and come to the fullness of salvation. So it makes all the difference in the world. Because in judge, a place like Judges chapter 13, we see God's gracious giving. In a place like Judges chapter 13, we're pointed towards Jesus, the greater judge, who means the end of striving for salvation. It, we, we see our need for disruption, and we see our need to be witnesses to the one who can truly save. Here in Judges 13, we see God's gracious provision with this miraculous baby, Samson. He breaks in upon his people. He gives to them what they need 
and what they could not get for themselves. And in this, we're pointed toward Jesus, the greater judge, the greatest judge, a miracle baby through whom God breaks in upon his creation to disrupt, to disturb, and to bring to the salvation to the fullest. And I've said this to you in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.